as a father, um, I watched three children come into the world. And uh, when they came into the world, boy, were their lungs strong. You know how it is. Child comes into the world and they're crying. And why are they crying? Well, it's probably not because they're like sad or mad. It's certainly not because they're laughing so hard they're crying. No, children are crying because they've left the safe environment of mama's womb and now they're entering into this real world full of people with masks and monitors beeping and they see this ugly mug and they see these sterile looking devices. It's a change of venue, a change of venue. And we're gonna experience some of that this morning as we leave the safe, orderly world of Psalm 1 and 2 and we enter into the more chaotic world of Psalm 3. Remember, Psalms 1 and 2 are the gateway posts into the world of the Psalms. The first Psalm tells us that we need to navigate life by God's word. The second Psalm tells us that God's in charge. Let God be God. Let God rule your life. It's almost like Psalm 1 and 2 are the world as it should be idealistically. The world of oughts and shoulds. You know, when you were younger, a lot of things that you looked at the world, the way you looked at the world, like this is how it ought to be and this is how it should be. And then, then you experience some pain and some hardship and you realize that the world's not always an ought or a should. In fact, once you come to that conclusion, that's when Psalms three and forward start becoming so precious to you. Now, Psalm three is a Psalm where David is dealing with one of the most primal emotions that we experience. It's what that baby experiences when they come into the world. It's the emotion of fear. Fear as an emotion is not always a bad emotion. Uh, there's good fear responses. For example, if you're standing in the road and a car comes like just speeding towards you, hopefully your body experiences a level of fear and galvanizes you to action, to get out of the way of the speeding car. It comes, the feeling comes, and then it moves on. But there's other forms of fear. There's fear that lingers and stays. Uh, it's called anxiety. One poet writing in the 1940s said that our age is the age of anxiety. For whatever reason, people living today fear, uh, experience anxiety at greater levels than our ancestors did. I can't quite explain it all to you. But I'm telling you that the thesis seems to be supported by the research over and over again. They're saying to us, you're anxious. Now, what, is it, what does it mean to be anxious? Well, I want to suggest that anxiety is unspecific or diffuse fear. You don't always know why it's there. You can't really pin down what the root cause of it all is. If good fear comes and galvanizes you and puts you in action and then it moves on, anxiety is a fear that stays with you. It's like a cold drizzle upon your life and it mildews your soul. 
The late Timothy Keller said this of anxiety. He said that anxiety most fundamentally is an attack on your sense of self. Everything you thought you understood about yourself, everything that seemed to make the world make sense, gets shaken. And you lose your sense of security and your sense of control. And that is where David is at this morning in Psalm 3. So let me read the psalm to you. Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So David in Psalm 3 is helping us discern how to navigate the muck of fear and anxiety. And I want you to notice that there are a couple of steps that he takes in this prayer. The first step as he shows us that you have to take an honest look at your problem. Okay, we see this specifically in verses one and two, but we have this superscription before the psalm begins. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This superscription is so helpful because we have these books of the Bible that tell us about the good, the bad, and the ugly of David's life. We know with David, two things were true at the same time. One, David was a man after God's own heart. But two, David grieved God's heart several times because of colossal moral failures. Now, how do those two things exist in the same world? Well, they can exist in the same world because God is a God of grace, I love this description of the gospel from Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So here you have David, in Psalm 3, and he's writing because he's fleeing from his son, and this is a natural consequence of a sinful choice he's made earlier in life. If you know the story, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he's complicit in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Nathan the prophet confronts David. He tells David that there will be consequences. David repents, of course, but the consequences will persist. And one of the consequences is what's happening right now in the story. David is running for his life. His kingdom is being wrenched from his grip by his own son. He's crossed the Jordan River and, and he's living in an encampment, waiting, hopefully, 
to take his kingdom back. Now, what David is doing here in this psalm is he's showing us what to do with our problems. Can you imagine a, a more fearful, anxiety-producing dynamic than, than having to flee for your life, having thousands of people looking out for you, having your own son want to rip the kingdom from your hands? As David is talking about his problems, he keeps repeating the words, how many, how many, how many? Have you ever been in a season of life where it just seemed like the problems multiply, they stack up on one another. In fact, we have this saying today where we say, when it rains, it pours. That's where David's at right now. It's pouring. And if you went up to David on a Sunday morning, a bright Sunday Father's Day morning, and you said, David, how are you doing? He wouldn't give you the guarded, oh, I'm fine. He'd say, I'm terrible right now. This is hard. I'm scared. David is showing us something about navigating emotions in life. See, in our culture today, I think there are two ditches on the side of the road of navigating your emotions. One ditch on one side of the road is that I stuff them. I build these thick, dense, tall walls around myself. I'm impenetrable. No one can make me feel anything. You never show how you're feeling, ever. The other ditch, however, is to be ruled by your emotions. This is the person that when life presents problems and challenges, their emotions rage within them like a storm, uncontrolled, and, and they no longer take responsibility for their behavior and their actions because they just feel things. And the Bible is telling us this morning that you neither need stuff your emotions or be ruled by your emotions. There's a third way. And the third way is prayer. David begins in verse 1 by addressing the God of the universe, O Lord. Now, that's a special name of God. It's Yahweh. In the Old Testament terms, Yahweh is like the New Testament, Abba, Father. It's a very personal name for God. It's a God that's approachable. It's a God who's known. And David, as he shows us how to navigate anxiety, he's showing us the steps. First, I take a look at my problems. But you don't just stay in the problem. You don't just keep repeating many, 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 many are my problems. Because if you do that, you will just spiral endlessly in the problem. You then have to move from taking a look at the problem to taking a look at your God. I read um, the story about the soldier picture, the picture of the soldiers from Iwo Jima in 1945. Uh, two authors wrote this book, The Flags of Our Fathers, and they were talking about when that photograph was first released, that in Texas, a young man named Ed Block was on leave from the Air Force, and he saw the photo in a newsstand, grabbed the newspaper, and he took it home to his mother, Belle Block, and showed her the picture. And Bell like, immediately points at the photograph. And, and the soldier who's holding the flag and putting the flag into the flagpole, she says, Ed, 
that's your brother Harlan. That's him. And Ed is like, what, mom? How could you know that? That's a picture of some soldier's back. We don't even know where Harlan is stationed right now. We can't know that that's Harlan. And Belle looks at Ed and she says, I know my boy. Now, the figure was later identified as Henry Hansen, not Harlan Block. But Belle, she couldn't be convinced. She knew her boy. A couple of more details emerged along the way. First detail, sadly, is that Harlan was in Iwo Jima, and he was killed in action, and the family was notified of that. The second detail came in 1947. They were doing more research into the photograph, and additional testimony came out, and it turned out that the soldier putting the flag into the ground was indeed Harlan. And Belle was unsurprised. She said, I know my boy. Now that's the same kind of feeling we get from David this morning in the psalm. He knows Yahweh. I know my God. Now let me tell you this. When you get into the muck, sometimes God feels distant or remote. Sometimes it even feels like God's back is turned to you. But if you really know your God, you know that he's with you. You know that he's present. And David is saying this in verses 3 and 4. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now notice that David is recognizing two things about his God. First, that his God is a protector. He is a shield about me. Now normally a soldier carried a shield that was smaller. It didn't cover the whole body. It was meant to cover your upper torso and provide mobility so that you could go into battle. But the shield that David is describing in the text is a shield that covered you from head to toe. Now, why would you need a shield like that? Well, you need it because sometimes your general sends you into very dangerous dynamics. In fact, possibly the most dangerous front in a battle is when you had to go and storm a castle to overtake it. The stones are coming down, the arrows are being fired at you, and the general sends you into that place, perhaps we can learn something about God's protection in this. Don't believe, as you read Psalms like this, that God's protection means that God just removes your problems from you, that he takes them away. Don't believe that God doesn't send you into problems intentionally, and don't believe that God wants you to run away from your problems. The only way that this type of shield works is if I move forward in the general direction, right, where the general sent me. If I turn my back and I run, then I have exposed myself to the harm. Another thing that he observes about God is that God is his glory. Now this takes us right to the heart of the problem of anxiety, because remember, anxiety is an attack on your sense of self, and David is being tacked deeply. 
you look at verse 2, his enemies are questioning the very foundation of his existence. It says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, we don't talk about someone's soul when we're, when we're lev leveling an insult at them. We don't begin like, oh, your soul is stupid. We don't say things like that. But in this day, the soul was the nefesh. That Hebrew word nefesh meant that most deeply, your most deeply held beliefs, your needs, your desires, your hopes, what characterizes you at the core of who you are as a person. And notice that these enemies are trying to shake David at his very core. And let me suggest that David may have needed to be shaken at his very core. Because David, of course, sinned against God. He got into this whole Bathsheba and Uriah debacle. Perhaps David's core was being rested in the place of him being king and him being prosperous and him having all of this publicity. One author says that Anxiety is smoke, and you must follow it to the fire. The fire is something that has become too important to you. Anxiety is caused by placing your security in finite things. Things that can just go like that. Things that can change. The better I start understanding myself, I've come to the realization that sometimes I put my security in my perfectionistic standards, my competence, how others view me, and I've lost sleep over it. Finite things. And sometimes God comes into your world and he takes some of those finite things away. You look at David's situation. He no longer has the love of his son. He no longer has his kingdom. He no longer has the success and the publicity and the prosperity that he was experiencing. He's even uh, in a situation where he doesn't have a place to lay down his head at night safely. And yet, in the midst of all of that, he confidently says that, what? My God is my glory, the lifter of my head. Do you see what he's doing there? He's relocating his glory. It was in the king thing, but that wasn't stable enough. My glory and my competence, that's not stable enough. Your glory and, and people's approval over you or your career or your 401k or your intelligence or your political savvy or whatever it is, that's not good enough. The only place where your identity is secure is in the hands of the eternal God of the universe. And if he thinks you're special and he thinks you're worthy of dignity, guess what? You are. Who cares what other people think? In fact, who cares what you think? And it's coming to that realization that helps us as followers of God to live beyond the muck. And we enter into this space as we develop the habit of prayer. Prayer. Now, Psalms are 
prayers of the people of God, which, which we have received like an inheritance, and we can follow in their footsteps and understand why they were praying the way they did and how they prayed. And they're teaching us that we can learn to trust because here's what prayer takes us through the motions of. One, if I'm going through something and I take it to God, I'm first taking a look at my problem. I'm acknowledging that something's not right. And then as I turn to God and I have a big view of God, like a Psalm 2 view of God that's developed through the word of God, a Psalm 1 view of God, well, then I come to the realization that my God is big and my problems are far smaller. I begin to learn what it really means to trust God. Now, what does trust actually look like in the real world? Well, look at what David says in verses five through eight. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Turns out that trust is really tangible. You can take inventory of it. First, let's look at what it looks like. Trust looks like this. Trust looks like a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep. I laid my head down. I woke up again. The Lord sustained me. I like Chuck Swindoll's definition of anxiety. He says that it's taking responsibility for needless things and things outside of my control. How many of you have spent hours in the night tossing and turning over needless things and things outside of your control? I think that we lose sleep and we enter into this space because we plan before we pray. Now, if I'm David and I'm in, you know, across the Jordan in this encampment, it's hard to get good sleep at night because I'm going into proactivity mode. I'm getting out the maps and I'm putting all the pieces on the maps and I'm strategizing what I'm going to do next and, and I'm entering into the world of all the projections of how things might be or could be or will be. But I'm telling you this, there's a difference between being prudent and thinking ahead and endlessly running through a repeat loop in your mind about what you're going to do if this thing happens. Like, you know, if you're gonna have a hard conversation with your boss and you, you, you plan in your mind about how you're gonna say if he says this or that or the other, and then you go and you have the conversation and it doesn't go anything like what you spent all that time thinking about. Isn't that why Jesus said that Anxiety doesn't add an hour to your life or an inch to your height. It doesn't do anything for you. In Psalm 127, the psalmist says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Do you think perhaps God's showing us in his word 
that sleep is an indicator to your level of trust and confidence in him. Trust also looks like expecting God's salvation. And now we come to a more um, difficult part of the Psalms, a more uncomfortable portion of them for the modern reader. Let me read it to you in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase so you can really feel verse 7. Up, God. My God, help me. Slap their faces. First this cheek, then the other, your fist in their teeth. Now that sounds more like the cheering section in an MMA competition than it does a prayer. And as I look at that, I think to myself, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus' turn the other cheek. He's telling him, punch his teeth out. What's going on here? (laughs) Guess what, y'all? David's a little frustrated and angry right now as he's praying. Prayer sometimes is our raw emotions. Sometimes in prayer, I come to God messy with my words. But I want you to note something that keeps us right in the tracks of faithfulness in David's prayer. David himself is not being vengeful. Scripture says, Romans chapter 12, don't take vengeance in your own hands. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And David was not vengeful through this whole situation. As you read the story, he actually says to his general Joab, don't harm a hair on my son Absalom's head. So he's not taking vengeance, but he is committing vengeance into the hands of God. Now here's something you have to understand about David's predicament. If David's going to be safe, if David's going to be delivered, he's going to have to ask God to remove the threat. Okay? The next time you think about this dynamic, I want you to think about Bessie. Now Bessie was a really, really large Burmese python that had escaped from her her confines in an apartment complex. The complex was rather large, 57,000 square feet. Big apartment complex, lots of pipes, lots of beds, lots of couches, lots of fun places to hide if you're out on an adventure. Now, the people of the complex unleashed a, a legion of plumbers in the place. They looked up and down throughout the place for two weeks until Bessie was finally discovered in the apartment above the apartment that she came from. Now, oddly enough, one of the residents said, I'm finally going to sleep well tonight. Hmm, I wonder why. Well, it's because you can't rest until the threat's removed. And we have threats in our life that persist. Now, David shows us in the psalm how to do this, how to go about this. You see, as he prays for God to remove the threat, his prayer is in the past tense. All the verbs are past tense verbs. In other words, He's presently in this situation. It hasn't finalized itself yet, and yet he's so confident in God 
that he believes God's going to deliver, that it's a done deal. It's already happened. I read a children's story from George MacDonald. He wrote it about 150 years ago, a little book called The Princess and the Goblin. Now, as George MacDonald was writing this book, he wrote about an eight-year-old girl named Irene who discovered in the attic of her house a fairy grandmother. And Irene would often visit the attic, and sometimes the grandmother was there, and sometimes the grandmother wasn't. So one day, she asks the grandmother, well, how do I find you if I ever get into a situation where I'm not safe? So the grandmother hands Irene a little ring. And tied to the ring is this thread, and the thread leads back to a ball of thread, which the grandmother keeps. And whenever Irene feels fearful, she can follow the thread to find her. Irene says, well, I can't see the thread. And the grandmother says, well, that's true. It's too fine. You'll never see it, but you can always feel it if you put your finger on it. Now, the way that this works is if you ever find yourself in danger, you take off your ring, you put it under your pillow, the thread will appear, you lay your forefinger on the thread, and you follow the thread wherever it leads you. But here's a warning. The thread sometimes takes you on very roundabout ways, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, while you hold the thread, I hold it too. A few days later, Irene is in her room and she hears goblins break into her house. She hears them snarling out in the hallway and then she has the presence of mind to take the ring off, put it under the pillow. The thread emerges. She places her forefinger on the thread. She begins to follow the thread, but instead of taking her upstairs to the attic, the thread takes her outside into the dark world, and she keeps following the thread, and then the thread takes her to the cave of the goblins. And then she enters into the cave of the goblins, and it keeps taking her deeper and deeper into the heart of the mountain until she finally arrives at a dead end, a heap of stones. The thread goes right through the heap of stones. She doesn't know what to do. She's fearful. She's come to a standstill. Irene thinks to herself, well, at least I can follow the thread back the way I came. The moment that she tries to reach back and follow the thread back out, it disappears only while her finger was on it forward. So she gets her finger on the thread forward. And she comes to the realization that I need to trust what my grandmother said. She removes this heap of stones, and as the story plays out, Irene follows the thread, and she's led to safety, as her grandmother said. Follow the thread. Hmm. That sounds very similar to some words Jesus said. Follow me. I'm going to take you on a journey, and 
I don't want you to turn to the left or the right. I want you to put me first. I want you to trust me. I want you to stick with me. I want you to walk with me in the midst of disappointments, in the midst of pain, in the midst of fears. I want you to even continue following me when you are looking forward and you're saying to yourself, I don't get this. It doesn't make sense. Why? Can I let you in on a little secret with God? you're not always going to understand why. It's a similar dynamic to asking a a seven-year-old to write you an essay about love and marriage. They may sit down, they might write you a very colorful essay about all that they know about love and marriage, but when you sit down and you read the essay, you're going to say, this isn't what it's really like. Why is that? because they haven't lived enough life yet to experience love and marriage. And in the same way, it takes years and years and years of following the thread before you understand more and more and more of God's ways and his purposes. So what do I do in the midst of all of that? Well, I follow Psalm 3. I take an honest look at my problems. And then I take an honest look at at God and the God of the universe and who he is and all that he is. And then for goodness sake, sleep. Go to bed and expect him to deliver. Keep following the thread. Let's pray. A prayer of relinquishment. Today, O Lord, I yield myself to you. May your will be my delight today. May your way have perfect sway in me. May your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving care my family, my friends, my future. Care for them with a care that I can never give. I release into your hands my need to control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity. Eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on earth. For Jesus' sake.